welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And this is, believe it or not, our January edition. Dates have got somewhat out of kilter and we last spoke to you before Christmas. A lot has happened since then. We've uh, entered another lockdown here in the UK. I've had a vaccine. Simon, I think you've had a vaccine. The world is getting vaccinated and we're hopefully on our way out of another lockdown. But coronavirus continues to dominate us, our lives and the blog site. It does. It's, you know, it feels like sometimes it's the only game in town. And to some extent it is. It's been a fantastic year for research. Amazing amounts of work been done. And it's really exciting to see this science base around COVID-19 develop. But there's other things going on as well. Other things that we've noticed on the blog. Well, why don't we start off with coronavirus and start off with the recovery trial? I know that actually we're recording this after you've just come off a meeting chatting about how that's all going. And there's been a few results released about recovery in the last few weeks, covering a range of different treatments, actually, some more successful than others. We've discussed azithromycin on the blog, lapinavir, ritonavir, and of course, the big T, toxalizumab. That's it. You're in the inside here. Give us the lowdown, if you can, on those three treatments and how they fared in recovery, which I have to say, I continue to be impressed by on a day-to-day basis. I I completely agree. The world's best trial of COVID-19 therapeutics by far and an incredible achievement for the the whole of the NHS and NIHR, to be honest. So what have we discovered in the last month or so? The first is azithromycin. Azithromycin was an interesting choice for COVID-19 because it has two issues around it that might have been a benefit. The first is it's an antiviral in vitro, so it actually affects the virus. And secondly, it's an anti-inflammatory. And there was a thought that, to some extent, both of those properties might have helped. That's something I didn't know is azithromycin is used in patients with bronchiapsis on a long-term basis for similar reasons. Anyway, the bottom line is that in the recovery trial, many, many patients randomized to this over a long, long period of time. I think it was something like 2,582 got azithromycin. They were compared to 5,182 who got usual care alone. And the bottom line is there was no difference in mortality. And that's 28-day mortality, which is the end point for the recovery trial. So azithromycin looked promising, but sadly didn't work. So we shouldn't be giving that anymore. Now, before you go on to the uh, next one, Simon, just remind us again about we've banged on about recoveries. If everybody knows what we're talking about, we talk about platform trials very briefly. Just remind us the way in which azithromycin got into that trial and what that platform trial is. Okay, so recovery is a platform adaptive trial. So essentially, you set it up whereby we know which sort of patients are going to go into the trial and we know what the outcomes we're measuring are. But the actual drugs that we're testing can change over a period of time. So normally we set up an RCT, say you're going to test azithromycin, and there'll be a start and an end point, and it'll just be one study. In these trials, what we do is we test azithromycin for as long as we need to, and then we test something else, or we test more than one therapy at the same time. So it's a really, it's a long-term project, and in fact, many, many advantages to doing a trial of this nature. It's quick, it's big, it's reactive, it's adaptable. It's really, really good for pandemics. You can stop a treatment for one of several reasons. The first is that you clearly show that it works. The second is it clearly show that it doesn't work. And the third is you've recruited enough patients such that the chance of it working is just not possible. Really interestingly and importantly, the people running the trial don't make those decisions. It's done by an independent committee who have access to the data. For azithromycin, it ran its course. They got to the point where they'd recruited enough patients that they would know whether there'd be a significant benefit. There wasn't. So they stop. And with each of these, 
each treatment is looking at different aspects of how we might combat COVID-19, isn't it? We've got the antiviral stuff and then the anti-inflammatory stuff. Where was lapinavir, ritonavir supposed to fit into that as an idea to how it was going to get to the virus? So azithromycin, as I said, was the uh, both a little bit of anti-inflammatory, but also an antiviral. Lapinavir, ritonavir had antiviral properties. So that was a second set of results. Now, this actually came out quite a long time ago. We've only just chucked it into the blog fairly recently. And this was about 1,600 patients uh, randomized to lipinavir ritonavir and compared to 3,500 in routine care. And again, no difference. There was essentially no benefit to obviously this antiviral. We've seen this, haven't we, in that antiviral medications, I can't think of any, in fact, there haven't been many, that have had any effect. No, I mean, it doesn't seem that actually attacking the virus at the very beginning of the infection is the thing that we need to be doing. And it doesn't seem that that makes a big difference. I've not had coronavirus yet. But I tell you what, if I was to get diagnosed, I'd sit there relatively comfortable for the first seven days. And then I'd start to worry. It's that period, isn't it, between eight, nine, 10, 11 days that really seem to be the key points where you become incredibly symptomatic. And that seems to me, to my relatively novice mind, when we should be trying our best to make sure that those effects aren't the ones that are affecting our patients. And that's where dexamethasone works, I think. And I'm guessing that's that's where toxalusumab works as well. You're absolutely right. The key thing is, of course, the recovery is a trial which recruits once you're in hospital. So it's not recruiting in those early phases. So very careful in the blog, and, and, and the authors have been as well, to say that this is about hospitalised patients. It may well be that antivirals work in the patients who are first diagnosed, although, again, we've not seen that yet, but there's a possibility. But in the hospitalised patients who are in that inflammatory phase of the disease, we know that dexamethasone works. And then tocilizumab, we've talked about it several times on the blog already. Remap-CAP, which is another platform adaptive trial based on ICU, came out in favour of tocilizumab. And in fact, the recommendations in the UK were that if you arrived on the ICU within 24 hours, many units were actually starting people on tocilizumab based on the REMAP-CAP trial results. But it's only actually since we've got the full data from the recovery trial that now shows there's a significant benefit to tocilizumab. Tocilizumab is an IL-6 inhibitor, I think, isn't it? Which is an inflammatory mediator, which goes to that theory of we want to stop the bad stuff down the road. Again, admitting that this is just our hospitalised patients, not the ones who are staying at home. We, we haven't even thought about how to shorten the disease course for people who don't need hospital. No, and the, the benefits of tocilizumab definitely seem to be in patients who've got really quite severe disease. So these are hospitalised patients with an oxygen requirement. In recovery, many of them were on intensive care, on invasive or non-invasive ventilation, and they had to have a high CRP of over 75. And there are certainly other trials out there where they've looked at tocilizumab in a broader range of patients or in a a less sick group of patients, and it hasn't shown benefit in those groups. I mean, it's a pretty tough, it's a pretty hardcore drug, tocilizumab. I mean, it's not something you want to band around like paracetamol. This knocks out your IL-6. It can last, I think, up to about a month. You get no CRP rises going forward. You definitely don't want to give this to somebody who's got a bacterial infection at the same time. Yes, it's great news. It does have an effect in this very severe group of patients. It's a drug we've got to be careful with. And certainly my rheumatology colleagues, who've had much more experience of using this in the past than I have, let's face it, I've never prescribed it before the recovery trial and didn't even know it existed. A lot of them have got a concern around that. And then again, if I'm going to jump on it again, think about this from an ICU point of view. Because we're taking these patients, we're giving them DEX, which is an immunosuppressive. We're giving them an IL-6 inhibitor, which is an immunosuppressive. That's a lot of immunosuppression. And there are some concerns among some people 
that maybe we will see an increase in opportunistic infections. And perhaps even that the endpoints for recovery at 28 days is a bit too short. And in remap cap is actually 21 days. So maybe we're missing some complications there. So there might be some more information to come out. And then finally, if you want to get me really excited about this. So we're now looking at even more inexpressive drugs. Um, so JAK2 inhibitors, so drugs like baricitinib. And of course, you wouldn't want to be on all three of those drugs together. So it's going to get quite complicated about the immunomodulation of these patients. It does give me flashbacks to, I think it was first or second year at medical school where we did immunology and it all seemed very distant to what I would ever need to know. But now I think I need to go and look at complement pathways. I have vague recollections of stuff to do with that. And it did seem very clever. And perhaps this is a whole new insight into how diseases work and how we need to be tackling them. There is a lot we're learning from COVID and there's more going forward, I'm sure. And one of the next posts that we had this month was actually going to the beginning to try and stop infection or at least stop perhaps the severity of infection and transmission. And Rick put together a really good vaccines update, which if you haven't listened to that podcast, I'd heartily encourage you to do so. Uh, not least because it does explain why you get such a sore arm after you've had the Pfizer jab. Uh, it's really just turning you into an antibody factory from what I understand. Some of the stuff in there is absolutely fantastic. Just to pick one thing out would be about the, how the Pfizer vaccine works. So you've got the mRNA in tiny little liposomes, which then go through the cell wall into whatever cell can express an antigen. So in this case, in the muscle, skeletal muscle cells, for example, that cell then expresses those proteins. And that's what you develop the antibodies to. This is amazing. I mean, just the science behind it and how it works is absolutely incredible. And the thing that surprises me the most a bit about our vaccine program is, do you, do you go and have your vaccine done in a highly efficient system that got you in and out in just a few minutes with a booking system that was done online with a text message that told you to go and have your vaccine with somebody telling you where to go? And there was a little bit of me that thought, oh, can't we apply some of this to emergency care? If we could do this for a vaccine, surely we could make our emergency departments a bit more efficient. I'm sure we could, but that would require investment and time and staff. And who would have thought that those would be factors? Let's not get onto that right now. But there are things we can all learn from coronavirus and from everything that we've been doing. Now, onto some other topics. Ludwig's angina, Pete Hume put together a post which... It's worth having a read of, if for no other reason, to remind you that the word angina comes from the Latin angere, meaning to strangle. Uh, one thing that I bang on to people about as to why cardiac pain is called angina, because it makes that neck pain makes you feel like you're being strangled. But Ludwig's is one of those diagnoses that you need to be able to spot in the emergency department and need to act on really quickly. Have you seen many Ludwig's, Simon, in your long, illustrious career? I haven't seen that many, but I I've seen a few and I've been really glad that I've spotted them. And I am aware that you, it, I agree with you, it is a diagnosis you do not want to miss. So you don't want to see somebody with this and then send them home and then find they're coming back the next day with, shall we say, a challenging airway problem. So this is that infection of the submandibular space, often with lots of different bacteria causing it, can be fulminant and really nasty. The patient comes in with a big swollen lower part of their face and it's woody inside. And it's the time when you really want to get an ENT surgeon interested as fast as you can in, in the emergency department. There are a few other times as well. There's a lot of information on that post. Like many of these diseases that we don't see that often, you have to spend more time learning about them for the amount of time you're ever going to see them. You need to be able to have that trigger in your head that reminds you that this could be the diagnosis. You don't label it as, I don't know, nasty tonsillitis with a little bit of cervical lymphadenopathy or something. This is something that could go really wrong. So have a look at that. And hopefully we'll be producing more of these types of posts 
on St Emlyn's, which discuss these difficult diagnoses and how we can make those easier to spot. Simon, the activity at the college goes on. You are doing all sorts uh, as CPD lead. There's been conferences and other research days, and there was an Archem Research Engagement Day, which I think well, you attended in, in the best way we can at the moment via a screen and a microphone. But how, how's that going? Well, research in the emergency department, a thriving area, or is it something that's just dying away? It's definitely thriving, isn't it? And if you think about where we were 10 years ago and how we've now developed a whole range of academics across the country, some really amazing academic centres. And this two days that we said about the, uh, the research engagement days, particularly the trainees one, was a real showcase of, of how much excellent work is being done around the country. And um, I had the opportunity to talk about research amplification. And what we mean by that is that I really love the phrase, research is not completed until it's communicated. It was Mark Walport, the UK government chief scientific advisor, who said it. And I think one of the things that we've done on St. Emlyn's and with the FOMED community is really tried hard to communicate science, to make sure that it gets to patients and to to clinicians where it should be and of course i would say the best exponent of this in the world is, is clearly ken mill over with the sgem in the in, in canada absolutely fantastic site that aims to reduce the knowledge translation time all of that kind of thing is important but also from a personal point of view as an academic you want to get your personal message out there because that's a recipe for improved uh, recognition which leads to more likely to be collaborating which means more likely to be published which means you're more likely to get grants which means more likely to get promoted which means you can then build the next generation getting your message out there and using social media having a platform making sure that what people find when they search for you is what you want them to find and not what somebody else thinks about you i think is really important so put a little presentation together a whole bunch of little tips on there about things that everybody should do if you're interested in academic medicine use it for the right reasons but use it to develop your career. There are many things about social media that I don't enjoy, but there are undoubtedly some positives. And I think I've learned a huge amount of medicine through social media and I've made a lot of good friends. For all of the times I just want to sigh and just delete it off my phone, there are other times when I find that I've learned something that I otherwise just wouldn't know about. Using it effectively and efficiently and with a degree of discipline is the way forward for social media for me, certainly anyway. Now, we then had a guest post about uh, leadership in a pandemic. So this is from uh, Yoki van Kirkhoven, um, who's a friend of ours, who we met at a number of the USEM conferences over the year. She's fantastic. She's done a huge amount of work leading emergency medicine in Belgium. She's one of the people who put together the Bedicine conferences, which I had the um, honour of speaking at a few years ago. Really, really good, actually. Um, and she's also done quite a lot of work in developing people and helping them managing stressful situations. And I believe that she's actually doing a PhD on it at the moment. So she's put together a really nice post about how you look after yourself from a leadership point of view during the COVID-19 pandemic. Some of this we've sort of covered on other posts before. Um, so things like breathing techniques and management of stressful situations. But she's brought it together really nicely. And to, to pick one of the things out that I would um, I think has been really really noticeable in the in the pandemic is the, the concept of cultivating growth mindsets from uh, Carol Dweck. You can, maybe not all the time, but most of the time, effective, useful, happy people take a growth mindset where you embrace challenges, you look to improve what you're doing, you realise that you've got to put work and effort in to get somewhere and that you, you get a lot of feedback on what you're doing and you take that on board and you learn with it. Trying to turn whatever happens in front of you into a positive move 
to realize that everything that happens can be a learning opportunity and to move forward. And she describes that clearly much better than I have just now, but very nice, actually. It's worth a read. Growth mindset at the moment, when we're in the midst of this pandemic, I think everyone's just tired, aren't they? And slightly fed up of the whole thing. There was another post we've had with a, a link to a video by Esther Murray talking a bit about moral injury. And it's hard really to convince ourselves that we can have a growth mindset in an environment where people are experiencing moral injury. I know that it's not everybody gets everything and some people will go through ups and downs and good bits and bad bits and, and others. But it's now a time where you can really say to yourself, do you know what? I'm, I'm going to grow through this pandemic. It's all going to be good at the end. I'll be a better person on the other end of it. Or do you think you're just tired? I think there are good days and bad days. And I don't think you have to be the same person every single day. I've got to say that I am definitely a cup half full, cup half empty person around the pandemic. On the one side, there is no doubt that from a society point of view, from a personal point of view, from the, the issues that is an absolutely devastating disease for, for patients, for economies, for all of those kind of things. It's just horrendous. I could just focus on that and do nothing else. The way I've coped with it to some extent has been to look at the things which have been opportunities. So I have found the fact that we've had to develop so much evidence. We've done such incredible science. We've had the opportunity to to teach and learn across the globe through social media, through things like blogs and podcasts. All of those are what I would describe as balancing factors for all the negativity that's in the world. I think that what we've done on St. Emlyn's and the, the people who listen to St. Emlyn's have tried is to realise that we can learn things as we go along. And some of that learning is a good thing because what's the alternative? We can't just be horribly negative about everything we've got to take the positives where they where we can find them they can be difficult but you know learn things learn more about the disease do the science get involved in research and as i did buy a dog we can talk dogs another time as you know i've just got a dog recently and unbelievably helpful for your mental health but the, i suppose this does lead on to that other thing we've often talked about to do with burnout and i i think it's worth mentioning again is that for me the solution to burnout is nothing to do with well for want of a more trite explanation yoga mats and you know crystals it's about being able to develop yourself isn't it and i think scott weingart used to talk about mastery and, and developing mastery in your own sphere and this is part of how i've got through this last bit is to try and be as good as i can be and for me that protects a lot from that idea of our oh, work is hopeless we're very lucky that the way we work you can develop new skills and you can learn stuff all the time this is not a boring job that we do i actually wish we could see the well-being discussion move away from those things about the sort of i don't know sticking plasters to make people feel better into the actual crux of how we can improve people's working lives such that they go to work enthusiastic and excited. And I think that's the protection that people need from the times when they've got despairingly awful cases to look after because they'll know they did their best and they'll know that they were as good a clinician as they could be. And for me, that's the thing that I want to keep banging on about. I see an awful lot of well-being and an awful lot of wellness. And actually, I want to Think more about how can we just be really good at the jobs we're doing? Because I think that's the key. This is the point where we really need Liz on the podcast, isn't it? We need a Liz Crow at this point, because if I've got her thinking right, then this is where she will be talking about balancing factors and her research showing that it's not how hard you're working. It's not what you're seeing. It's how you perceive the world in its entirety and how you balance out where you have negative experiences in life with all the positives and being able to see them, being able to embrace them, being able to share them. 
is a very powerful tool. The final post, this is back to critical care and another evidence-based topic looking at the HOT ICU trial. It does seem to me sometimes that people think about their acronym or the name of their trial before they actually consider what it is that they're going to test. It is important, isn't it? And the HOT ICU trial, it just sounds very cool. But this was all about giving patients oxygen in intensive care and what sort of levels we should be aiming for. I remember way back when we were talking about having to give high flow oxygen to everybody and then that became, oh, don't give it to people with myocardial infarctions. And they became, oh, well, COPD, that's bad. And they became, oh, does anyone need oxygen at all? And I mean, obviously, there's a pragmatic middle line, isn't there? But this was really saying that we can tolerate patients having lower oxygen concentrations. It's the way I read it anyway. No, you're absolutely right. So this is the ICU-based trial. And 618 patients on a, had a low oxygen strategy, so 60 millimetres of mercury. And 613 had a high oxygen strategy, 90 millimetres of mercury. Um, these are ICU patients, mixed groups, um, multiple centres across Europe. And the bottom line is it didn't make any difference between the two. And you're absolutely right, Ian. When I started off, everybody got loads of oxygen. And now we don't do that. We know that oxygen is, is bad in many diseases. It's not good for lung collapse. It's you know, more free radicals. It's bad for stroke, bad for heart attack, as she said. Can we go low? And this question is, how low can you go? Well, it looks as if we can go at least as low as 60 millimetres of mercury. What we still don't know from this trial is whether there's an optimal level. So I mean, whether at a level halfway between might be okay or how low can you go? For me, it just means that we can still probably in the ED for most patients look off the oxygen saturations and not having to aim for a, a sats of 98 to 100. You know, 92 to 94 is probably fine for the vast majority of patients. The other thing I'd like to say about this, it was, it was released at the Critical Care Reviews conference, which is free and open. And if you go to the CCR website, Critical Care Reviews, run by our good friend, Rob McSweeney, you can still see the, the presentations and they're great, actually. He's doing a really good job for an open conference this year. Yeah, this is our annual deferential bow to Rob and all the work he does. I think if you're an intensive care doctor, then it's not to be missed and it's proper evidence-based medicine and not just reading the trials, but also a discussion on how to read the trials. Simon, that brings us to the end of the blog post for January. Uh, I realise we're late into February, but let's leave February's post for another time to give us something to talk about in a few weeks' time. But before we go, I just wanted to pick up on a topic that you were having a discussion on Twitter about, something that we bang on about all the time, which is Bayesian theory and decision making in emergency medicine. Now, anyone who works with me will hear me bang on about pre-test probabilities and then likelihood ratios giving you a post-test probability. And you had a discussion which I thought was actually really interesting that caveats all of that we say. And this was really specifically about hip fractures. And the idea that if you have a low pretest probability and a negative hip X-ray, on our traditional Bayesian thinking, that would mean you could say a patient hasn't got a hip fracture. But as you pointed out, actually, it's more subtle than that. Explain to us what you meant. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Normally, if you have a low pretest probability and then you do a test which is negative, that makes it even less likely. So your post-test probability goes down. And to some extent, that is true. The difficulty with this one is really about the case example. In hip fractures, and in fractures in general, actually, if you're low to pre-test probability, then the what you will see on the x-ray is probably going to be less obvious than if it's a high pre-test probability. So give you an example of the hip. If your 85-year-old lady falls over on the snow and comes in with a shortened, rotated right leg, then that's going to be dead easy to spot on an x-ray because it will be massively displaced because you can see it's displaced by looking at the patient in the bed even before you take the x-ray. That's obvious. The one you'll miss is the patient who slipped on the ice, who comes in with their leg out to length, who could 
just about managed to vaguely, maybe even just not even quite just weight there on their leg, but they've got severe groin pain. That patient won't have changes on the x-ray because it's not displaced. So the paradox with hip fractures is the low pretest probability patient requires the very extensive investigation, at least a CT and actually in our practice an MR to rule it out. Low pretest probability means the fractures low likelihood of being able to see it on the film, which means a higher requirement for investigation. And the other group I would pull in this, first is hip fractures, the most obvious one that we see on a regular basis. And the other is cervical spine fractures. The cervical spine fractures, if you suspect they've got an injury, they're not got lots of signs. Those are the ones you need a CT to pick up. If the patient is tetraplegic, you will spot it on a plain film, not that you should be doing one. But you get my point. I just thought it was a really interesting way of thinking about these things that it isn't as cut and dry as sometimes we explain or, or try and make things. And there are subtleties to it. And worth bringing out that idea that you have to put all of this learning into the context of specific diagnoses and specific presenting complaints. And hip fractures is a really, especially at this time of year, isn't it? We're seeing people slip and slide all over the place. And it is that thing about, oh, there's no fracture on the x-ray. You can send them home. Yeah, but they can't walk. could they walk before yes they could okay well i'm afraid i know that you don't like admitting people to your ward unless there's a fracture on their x-ray but you're going to have to do some more testing on them to be fair to our orthopedic colleagues i think they're more onto this than they were a few years ago but i remember more than one case where they had an injury normal x-ray seemingly sent home and two weeks later they've then just off-ended that and they have become shortened and rotated on what was otherwise a compression type fracture I'm sure that the MPS and the MDU or any other defence society that you care to mention will have many such cases on their books. And always worth thinking about that. Although, as we've always said, good clinical care means you need never worry about the MPS and MDU. If you're doing good clinical care, that's all that anybody can ask of you. Simon, that brings us to the end of January. We're already halfway through February. Who knows quite where we'll be when we next speak? There's talk today of easing of lockdowns. Goodness knows the children may go back to school which I have to be honest, would help my mental health considerably. Uh, I love them, love them. But, you know, let's we should be absolutely honest here. This is the point in time where everybody realises why it is that teachers get long holidays. OK, they deserve every single hour of those. And uh, frankly, more um, if uh, me trying to homeschool two boys is anything to go by. Take care of yourselves. Keep enjoying your emergency medicine and we'll speak to you soon. Bye.